Pretty good morning and good evening as the case may be, depending <laughs> on your time zone. Um, but welcome to another United States Study Centre webinar. Uh, my name is Simon Jackman. I'm the CEO of the United States Study Centre and Professor of Political Science at the University of Sydney, where the United States Study Centre uh, sits. And uh, as we do for all our webinars, we begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which the United States Study Centre and the University stands and, and that they are the Gadigal people, part of the Eora Nation. And I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Today, we're joined by Anna Greenberg. Um, Anna is managing partner at GQR, Greenberg, Quinlan, Rossiter, um, a fixture in the political consulting survey research, servicing democratic campaigns now for, 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 for some time, uh, a very established firm in that constellation of-, of 40 years. <laughs> and, um, and Anna, of course, and I go back to, um, uh, she suffered through my first efforts at being a, a political science <laughs> professor at the University of Chicago as she was completing her PhD studies there. Um, longer ago than I will care to admit uh, to protect both Anna and myself. <laughs> but, um, but, but then um, Anna went on um, to the Kennedy School um, uh, where she uh, taught public opinion and survey research methodology. Uh, she's been the lead pollster then, didn't go down the academic track, uh, uh, very much attracted to the practical business of public opinion and survey research in the context of advising campaigns and, and democratic candidates in particular, and many, many successful state uh, gubernatorial campaigns under her belt. Uh, and every cycle is a busy cycle for Anna. And so we're especially delighted mm -hmm. to have her with us. She came to Australia a couple of years ago as a guest of the United States Study Center uh, and the University of Melbourne. We were so delighted to have Anna in country where she appeared um, on Q&A. Uh, one evening <laughs> as well. Yes. So, so if your memories are long, you, you might remember Anna being with us um, about two or three years ago. It was now, and we're delighted uh, to have Anna with us. Uh, good evening to you, Anna, there in in Washington D.C. <laughs> yes, it is evening here. I know it's morning there. So, good morning to everybody from Australia <laughs> who's watching. <laughs> hey, um, my day. <laughs> look, thank you so much for doing this, and and look. I just want to begin, we're going to get into the state of the race, presidential, and in particular, given your work, um, you know, down ballot in particular. But I, I just think it's, I mean, there you are at home. And as we were chatting before we went live on air, you were alluding to the fact that you're running a major political consultancy, but you haven't been in the office now, Anna, for how long? Almost five months. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> And I'm just wondering, look, we've, we're so privileged to have, you know, guests from Washington from time to time. I, I like to take a couple of minutes for Australian audiences, particularly those who've signed up for a webinar with the United States Study Center. <laughs> Can you just give us a, a, a sense of life on the ground there at the moment? And some of those reflections you were sharing with sure. me about how, how life in the center of government of the United States of America in the home, as in the home, heading into 90 days till a presidential election. Just tell us a little bit, a bit about what it's like there. Um, well, thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, you know, in some ways, it's not that different. Both my husband and I work from home a lot, and my husband works almost entirely from home. And so not being in my actual office, um, you know, isn't hugely different, and I can do almost everything online. Um, but it is, um, and we're very privileged, both my husband and I have our jobs, we haven't had our pay cut, you know, so we're sort of the same um, while the economy collapses around us, um, which makes us very aware of our privilege. Um, and our kids are here 24-7, um, <laughs> playing a lot of Minecraft um, because there's no camps. And I, it's like, everything is like baseball here. You think you can open it up and then you need to shut it right down. So people who opened up their sleepaway summer camps have had to shut it right down. They've opened up, you know, they, they started baseball and now they've had two separate teams with lots of coronavirus infections and they have to delay those games. Um, and so I personally don't feel that we can really do anything 
and we don't do anything. Um, we take walks around the neighborhood, we hike in the woods, um, you know, that's, we eat, we cook a lot at home. Um, we don't really do anything. We don't hang out with anybody except my sister, who's like in my pod here. Um, and, and it's just a very surreal little bubble to be in. Um, and I was mentioning to Simon before I, this started that, you know, my husband and I went for a hike in the Shenandoah Mountains, which is about two hours from here in Virginia. And we were on a fairly crowded path. And, you know, 90% of people were not wearing masks. There were crowds of people who looked like they were in college, like not a family, you know, related living, you know, 10 of them, no masks, going to swim in the waterfalls. Um, and it was extremely stressful. Like we were stressed, you know, it was not a relaxing hike. And then the next day we did a hike in Rock Creek Park, which is a huge national park that's within Washington, DC. Mm -hmm. And 90% of people are wearing masks and it wasn't stressful at all. And it just shows you the politics, you know, of, of this, that democratic states are doing better than Republican states because democratic governors um, are, you know, encouraging wearing masks and social distancing and being very careful about reopening, um, trying to do things like contact tracing, but frankly, we've, we've given up as a country on dealing with it, which is really sad and depressing. Uh, and then you go someplace more rural and like nobody's wearing a mask and it's like, well, I don't know anyone's got it. So, you know, whatever. And it's very weird. <laughs> it's very weird. Um, and at some point you realize like you can only really worry about keeping your own family safe. And then in my case, trying to elect people who actually maybe have a plan to deal with what's happening to our country. Um, I think it says something, Anna, to me at least, that American politics is so polarized that mask wearing has become, you know, you can guess someone's partisanship from whether they're wearing a mask or not. Everything. It's not just masks. It's, do you think schools should reopen in person? Totally partisan. Right. 65% of Republicans think we should reopen in person full time. 65% of Democrats say, no, we should do hundred percent online learning. I mean, any question about it, you know, whether it's masks or schools or reopening the economy, it's all partisan, all partisan. But I mean, it's interesting, like you can actually do an analysis of states with governors who are Democrats and states with governors who are Republicans. And you actually can see <laughs> that the states with Democratic governors are doing better. Not universally, California's got big problems, but yep. you know, as a, generally speaking, blue states are doing better because Democratic governors are actually trying to do, I mean, it's hard because there's no national strategy and there's no national effort to get people, you know, PPEs or, you know, there's no, there's no strategy, but at least the states themselves are trying to do the right thing. Um, just, I'll get to another question. I mean, I just want to remind everybody listening, you can type, you can submit questions live. Um, we do, um, Curate. Those are fed up to us. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to leave time to take questions from the floor, or the virtual floor, as, as it were, uh, around about the bottom of the hour. Um, we'll, we'll flip to your questions for, for Anna. Um, so feel free to type those into the Q&A box on, in, the, in the Zoom window. But um, look, Anna, from, from this distance, um, it certainly looks like this election is all about COVID. Um, or certainly from the democratic side that you want the election to be about COVID. If you're, a, if you're anyone from Joe Biden on down any other democratic candidate, I would imagine. And, and on the other hand though, the, the counter narrative, if you're the president and, and his campaign, it seems like anything you can do to move the conversation away from COVID. And if you can't, then away from culpability for COVID, mm -hmm. uh, everything to challenging, uh, the legitimacy of the election um, and sort of managing the 90 odd media cycles between now and election day with uh, looking for issues that either distract or, or ideally even wedge and hence the law and order play perhaps have, have, as a campaign professional Anna, have I got that right or is there anything you would want to sort of contradict that or, or challenge that or well, I mean when you say it's all about COVID for Democrats it's all about COVID for everybody I mean, in other words, like there isn't, you know, sometimes someone who works for me will write me a poll draft and I'll get it. And it's like, no, this is from 2018. Like, you know, you know, I had a focus group respondent say something that I, is COVID's world, we just live in it. 
Um, and so the idea that you would even write a poll draft that wasn't acknowledging sort of throughout the entire survey, the reality that we're living in right now. So every American is living in COVID. So it's not like Democrats wanted to be out COVID. This Democrat would be more than happy if we did not have COVID. Uh, I know you weren't suggesting that, but I'm just saying, but, but, um, but for sure. And um, there's no other issue you know, because it obviously cascades to economy and, right. you know, so it's health. And I mean, what, what more is there? You have your health, you, you, you do or don't have your health or you do to have money. Like those are the only two issues, right? Right. That being said, you cannot underestimate what's happened with the Black Lives Matter protests and the role that that's playing too. And it's independent, but not independent. I mean, it's yep. independent from COVID in the sense that it's obviously about policing and, you know, long-standing police violence against people of color. Um, and so it's, you know, and, and I'm not sure why George Floyd, you know, sparked a movement when Ferguson didn't or Eric Gardner didn't, right? Like, I don't know why that or Trayvon Martin, but it did. Um, but I think it's partly because there's so much anger about the president's divisiveness and racism and sort of sowing division as a way to get reelected and in which he has doubled and tripled down on, you know, socialism, yeah. China, you know, law and order. I mean, it's, it's all very the same thing. So that that's happening too, but it's not unrelated to COVID honestly, because there's so much anger about this president that that kind of infuses it. Um, so yeah, it's all COVID all the time. And, um, you know, I think that what you see in Trump's numbers, the vote job performance, when what I hear in focus groups is this just despair about the fact that there's no national leadership and there's, and people, the uncertainty that people are living in, including me, but like I have a job, right? right. But include everybody is so stressful. And I think the stress that people are living in here around not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing there's a plan, not knowing there's a future. And it's a moment that cries out for national leadership and a vision and a comforter and what we have instead is someone who is sending secret police to Portland and throwing people in vans. And, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like we have the opposite of that. And I think that is the problem for Trump and is the problem for the Republicans. He is an anchor around their neck. They hooked themselves to him from day one. And certainly once he won the primary in 2016 and they can't separate themselves now, there's like no possibility of separating themselves. So every election's nationalized almost every poll I do, the presidential votes identical to the Senate votes, identical to the congressional yeah, vote. Okay. Like you can't separate any of it. Right. Um, and I just want to pick up on something you said there. Um, one thing I've learned from hanging out with really great political consultants, <laughs> um, your reference there to the emotional states of voters. And as, as you know, um, um, there's a lot of political science that wants to talk about other things that are in voters' heads <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 uh, and the emotional states of voters are something that professionally um, is, is just not something I was trained to, you know, not part of my sort of training. And, but You're but, a numbers but, guy, Simon. Uh, well, but you can measure emotions and that's what I want to get to, um, Anna. Um, you mentioned the focus groups a couple of times, this feeling of despair you alluded to. How is that, I mean, in a way that probably isn't coming through in a conventional survey, but just talk to us about how important that's going to be in the election and perhaps on the other side as well. Um, the emotional appeals that are so important in the American system where voting is not compulsory. So why emotions play perhaps a bigger role in American politics than they might in say Australian politics could you just give us a sense of how you see that coming through in the focus group work or other forms of data you're collecting and how it's translating the campaign strategy? Well, I mean, it is, I actually think it's hard to measure emotion, <laughs> um, like someone's self-reporting over the phone to someone or, but I mean, I think focus groups are very revealing. Um, I think the emotion that was sparked by Donald Trump's election was significant. The Women's March pre-George uh, Floyd was the probably the largest single day demonstration in American history. We don't have, we can't count. <laughs> so, you know, we, we, there's some historical events we don't know, but you know, 
there's, I think, a fair amount of academic consensus. It's the largest single day demonstration in American history, and that was totally organic, ground up, not organized. I mean, ultimately, groups got involved, but it did not come. There was no top down Washington said, let's do a march. And a million people came to Washington, D.C. A million. Um, and so, and that emotion, you know, women woke up and said, I want to run for office. I have members of Congress right now who I helped elect who literally woke up on the Women's March said, I'm running for Congress, right? And they're about, now they're in Congress. So I don't think this emotion is new. And I think you've seen it then in 2018 with, you know, everything that happened, fundraising, activism, turnout. There were places in, in the United States where turnout almost matched presidential turnout or matched presidential turnout. And there are primaries in 2020 that are matching presidential turnout. So leave aside COVID. The emotions are there anyway. Right. You layer COVID on and you've got folks who are less political, maybe more conservative, who are really upset, you know? And it may not be a kind of anger march on the street, but they're like, okay, I thought Trump was okay because he was a good businessman, he created jobs, he said what he said he was gonna do, he cracked down immigration and he's strong and he's in control and he's getting stuff done. And now like, what is he doing? You know, if they're not crazy conspiracy hoax people, right? I'm talking about, you know, that chunk. And so that's where I think the emotion really kicks in is that the emotion was already there with Democrats, you know, and you saw it for the last three and a half years. But where it's really significant is with people who were never activated before. And, you know, I don't think, I mean, turnout, like if you were to apply the percentage increase between 2014 and 2018 to the presidential, it's actually not possible for that many people to turn out. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do. I, we're going to see the biggest turnout. I know we don't have compulsory voting, but it's going to be like, you know, now we can get into all the vote by mail and fraud. Yeah, I gotcha. Gotcha. We might stuff, get to but, that. Later. I mean, so I'm just saying like the emotion's been there for some time. Okay. And it's now spread. Is it a drive? People are angry and upset. Um, are you seeing flips? People that voted Republican in 16 are saying, I can't do it. Um, or even lifelong Republicans, um, you know, say, oh, wow, that, that was a, I made the wrong bet in 16. Um, um, is that coming through clear? And yeah, so, but it actually happened between 2016 and 2018. So there's really yeah. good, you know, catalyst. There's very good analysis by... Um, whatever, you guys don't need to know what the organization is. Very, very, very reputable research that shows that the shift between 16 and 18 was much less about turnout because actually Republicans turned out at very high numbers yeah, yeah. as did Democrats and it was people switching. So they were either third party, they were Johnson or Stein voters in 16 who voted for Democrats or they were Trump voters who voted for Democrats yeah. or they were people who only voted in presidentials and maybe voted for Clinton but didn't vote in midterms before. So that they estimate about 85% of the change between 16 and 18 was people changing their behavior wow. as opposed to like this group turned out more than yeah. other groups. There was a little of it, story. but yeah. yeah. And so that already happened. And so the suburbs have just, you know, gone completely democratic, but there was also shifts in rural areas. People don't report on it because we didn't pick up seats in rural places, but there was actually a shift in rural. You know, it's, it's you know, if you're starting at 30% and you go to 37 it doesn't change the outcome of that election, but that's still a big shift to Democrats, even in rural areas. Yeah. So a lot of that shifting already happened. It predated this. But what I do think now with COVID and the failure of this president and, the, and his, you know, complicit Republicans is for people who were sort of like, you know, I like what he's done. I don't like him, but I kind of like what he's done. Raises real questions for them, for him. And especially among, I would say, college educated men are a group that historically, they voted overwhelmingly for Mitt Romney in 12. Yep. And Trump won them in 2016, but Democrats broke even with them in 2018. And I'm working in places where we're winning college-educated men by five or 10 points. It's like unimaginable. We never, Democrats never yeah, talk right. about men. Right. <laughs> we never talk about men voters. We only talk about right. women voters. <laughs> right, right. Wow. Um, look, um, I've got to ask, um, we, we had a fantastic webinar um, Oh, you know Jen Lawless. Um, I do. Yes. So Jen joined us for a webinar on, on the beat pick uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, which was terrific. And I thought we'd have an announcement by now. Um, so let's quickly, 
if, if you don't, while I've got you, I've got Oh, a, Big Pick is VP. I was like, I didn't know she, she having a baby. Like, I didn't know what you're talking about. Anyway, sorry. Um, sorry. <laughs> um, 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 and um, I'm just wondering, look, we, we could get into, you know, who might be the likely pick and why don't we come back to that. But let me ask with a bigger question. In this kind of environment, does it matter that much? Uh, are Dems just so riled up and a lot of people riled up in general um, on both sides, frankly, that it's this level of emotion in particular you're alluding to um, is, is going to take some of the mobilizing potential of the beat pick. Uh, it's not about mobilizing potential this time necessarily. I'm just wondering strategically, just given everything else that's going on in the cycle, what's the strategic logic behind one particular pick over another at this point in your view? I, I don't think it's about mobilization. Um, I mean, turnout, I mean, I just worked in the Colorado primary. As many people turned out in the pres in the Senate primary as turned out in the presidential primary. Like right. people are motivated. Right. Democrats are motivated. Right. I think this is a very consequential choice, probably more than, well, in my history. I'm sure, sure. there are times in political history, which I don't know very well, <laughs> like pre-1960, when it mattered a lot who the VP candidate was. But certainly in my lifetime, sure. it's never mattered as much. And it's because the Republicans have done sort of a masterful job of of sort of through both mainstream, I mean, Trump, Trump, you know, tweets it all the time, but also through social media in sort of convincing a lot of people that Biden is, has dementia or he's going to have a stroke or, you know, that he's not going to serve out his four years. And so what happens is the VP pick, um, you know, becomes like this person could be president. And so I would not want to be Joe Biden and have to pick this because whoever they whichever woman he picks will be eviscerated. Yeah. And um, because you have to disqualify her. I mean, normally no one pays attention to me. Palin, I mean, actually, look, actually Palin's not a bad example of a, a hugely consequential choice for VP. Like Palin hurt McCain, right? Um, in the long run. And, yeah. 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 In the long run, she hurt yeah. McCain, you know, yeah. and I'm certain, I mean, I'm, it's overdetermined that Obama would have won that election. So I don't want to suggest in any way that Palin was determinative in some way. But I mean, if you thought about like, if, you know, if McCain died, would you want Sarah Palin to be the president? And, you know, over time, people became less and less enamored with her. Um, so point. I don't envy yeah. him this decision because yeah. that's what it's going to be about. It's about can we further disqualify Joe Biden by disqualifying his VP pick and say, it's too dangerous for you to vote for him. Because yeah. it's not just a vote for Joe Biden. It's a vote for this woman X who is going to do Y, like whatever, whatever it is. So I, I'm, I'm like, how long can you delay? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I hear you on that. Like, mm -hmm. and also this earlier talk of, um, oh, we're going to pre-announce cabinet positions and um, put out slabs of our policy. You know, I'm like, again, you know, the, the rational choice trained political scientist going, no, you don't have to do any of that. No. <laughs> the, the, the other side, it is have dug themselves. Anyway. Hey, so, so with that in mind, um, where do you think this pick is likely to land now? You know, Kamala Harris is probably the first name that comes to mind. Part of me you know, I'm just wondering, are expectations so high that it has to be a woman of color? And, and part of me is thinking, I don't know that it needs, I, I'm very interested in your take, Anna, on given what you just said, where, where, where the pick might land. You know, um, first of all, I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> so no, fair enough. I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I think there's going to be, and especially because women candidates are judged differently than than, than men are. So there's going to have to be a minimum level of kind of experience and gravitas that, you know, that this, you know, and it's a double standard. I mean, Obama didn't have a <laughs> very much experience when he was elected president and Trump had no experience, you know, in government. So it's a double standard, but I think that it would be hard to pick somebody who's had four years in Congress, right? A woman, I mean, because I think that 
she will be undermined by. So there has to be some kind of gravitas and standing, I think. And um, so that would be, you know, and, 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 you know, it happens all the time in races I'm working on where we have to like meet some threshold of qualification um, to have people actually hear what she has to say. Yeah. Um, you're you're saying, saying women candidates face a special burden in that regard. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Just wonder. Yeah. I mean, I worked for a candidate who's a pediatrician and, you know, if a man, a male pediatrician ran, it's like, he's God, he takes care of children. Oh my God. You know, you know, when she ran, they're like, does she, she looks like she gives out lollipops, uh, you know, like, okay. is she really a doctor? Like someone said that, is she really a doctor? I mean, uh, you know, okay. you just like, it's, it's, you're, you're in behind the glass and you're like, what? Um, so there's that piece. And then, um, I think it's hard not to pick a person of color. I just think with what's happening with um, kind of racial, the racial justice movement. And I think some of the problems that the Democratic Party has around representation, and it's not just representation in elective office, it's representation at every single level of the Democratic Party is very white. Um, and, you know, I think, so I, again, I have no idea, but I think that there's, there's good reason to pick a person of color to be on the ticket. If, if it's not about mobilization though, what, what's it about? I mean, is it just the historical significance of this moment versus cold, hard? It's not about mobilization. Strategy? It's about demobilization. It's like if, you know, because Trump, because Biden surprisingly is not that well defined. Like people have a very hard time saying anything he's done, right? And say so to you like, well, he was Obama's VP for eight years and you'd think like they'd have something to say about him substantively, but they don't really. Mm -hmm. um, VPs don't generally, don't generally have independent. Yeah, right, files, right. Right. Yeah. You know, I doubt anyone when Gore ran for president knew what he'd done is. So it's not a critique of Biden. It's just too true. And so, you know, and then there's been, you know, like disinformation and propaganda through the, you know, through both nefarious actors and the Republican Party itself is real. And I hear a lot of things in focus groups about Biden that aren't true, but they clearly are being disseminated. And so I think, you know, the wrong pick for VP may some lower propensity voters who it's an effort to, I mean, it's ridiculously hard to register and vote here. And now with COVID it's even but, harder, but why maybe does they that... just don't bother. Maybe they just don't bother. So it's not mobilization in the sense of like, we need it for high turnout. We're going to have high turnout, right. but there's some group of low propensity voters who say like, you know, okay. Okay. You know, there's um, some old white guy that I don't know anything about, but maybe he's a sexual harasser and, you know, right. like, and I don't, now there's another person on the ticket who I don't know anything about them. And do I want to, am I going to get up and go register to, you know, and, and but, I mean, I don't but, think Australians know how hard it is to vote in this country. Sure, it's not easy to vote. So, but just, I just want to last question on this. So why does that say to you, a woman of color, as opposed to a white woman? Well, you know, the Democratic Party over time has become more racially liberal and apt to the group that shifted the moat are white Democrats. So a commitment to racial justice is actually a really important, is really important for younger white voters. It. It's not okay. just, it's not, I mean, this is, and I'm sure you've seen the ANES data yep. on the percent of white Democrats who call themselves liberal and their movement, all kinds of racial attitudinal questions. So it is about people of color as voters but also particularly for like younger who might vote for Bernie Sanders or Gary right. Johnson, like it matters. So kind of in the same way that I remember the democratic primary in 08 where su supporting Obama for a white people on college campuses, um, uh, overt expressions of your support for Obama were right. Um, you were down with the program in a way that, yeah. Okay. Okay. And really speaking to that constituency that Obama mobilized, um, his campaign was a. It's it's part of that though. Since yeah. Trump got elected, there has been a shift, and people who might have been like independent, sometimes vote Republican, would vote for a moderate Republican for Congress, but then vote for Obama. What I mean, there has been a shift okay. because of how overtly racist Trump. I mean, it's not like the racism didn't exist, but his overt racism and his empowering of racist movements and his normalizing of racism has had, you know, it has mobilized people on his side, 
but it is mobilizing you on the other side. And it's, so it's not like, it's not performative. There are a large number of people who feel very committed to vote against Trump, independent of COVID, because of the way he has fomented racial division in this country. That's really, I'm glad we interrogated that, Anna. That, that's, that's really helpful and something um, I'm going to, me and my team here are going to go look at some recent data <laughs> we, we've been collecting on, on, on that. So, so let's move on. Um, we've talked a little bit about some of the demographics uh, that are moving. I want to jump down to a question that I get asked all the time, and you must too, Anna. Um, um, can we trust the polling this time around? Um, I, just last night, I was looking at the misses in state level poll averaging in 16 you know, and there are colossal misses, like underestimating Trump's strength in swing states, um, you know, averaging across the public polling, five, six, seven point misses in, in places um, where Trump ended up winning or almost won. Um, has polling improved since 16? And, you know, these massive leads we're seeing certainly nationally and in some swing states for Biden at the moment, are they believable in your view? Well, I mean, we've learned a lot about what went wrong in 2016 and we fixed a lot of it. And, you know, I think the consensus is, now you follow this as closely as anybody. So thanks for asking me, but you know as much as I do about this. <laughs> um, <laughs> you do. Um, is that there was, we, the polling really underestimated the number of people who have a college education um, in this country. And that's partly because you know, certain polls that we use like exit polls to help us figure out what the electorate looks like overrepresent college educated people more likely to stop and take an exit poll. And so pollsters have been thinking about like what percentage of, you know, Michigan is college educated. Oh, it's X percent, but that's wrong. <laughs> and so um, when you have close elections, then it be like they were in Michigan and was, you know, in Wisconsin and, and Pennsylvania, that getting that wrong matters a lot. And actually we had a precursor for this in Kentucky in 2015 in that governor's race where a similar dynamic, the polls were all wrong. So, you know, what happened is if you, my understanding is if you go back and just wait the, you know, wait the data to the, the actual percentage of college educated, then the polls look pretty close. Like they look, like pretty close to what Trump actually got, certainly tied. Um, so in 2019, I did the, uh, I worked in the Kentucky governor's race and there was a lot of PTSD because the polls were really wrong. I mean, like really wrong. Like people thought Jack Conway was gonna win by 10 points and he lost by 10 points. I mean, I don't think it was that, but it was like really wrong. So I, I didn't work for the candidate, I worked for an outside group. Um, so I required my sample be 70% without a college education, just required it, said, I don't care. You know, if more college educated people are agreeing and, you know, we're like, we got it right, you know. So I think that that's, that correction has kind of happened. And I think the 2018 polls have been very accurate. Right. Now, now what we don't know is who's going to turn out to vote. Because what happened in 2018 was a lot of people came out to vote in special elections and primaries who had never voted before. Right. And how do you talk to someone who's never voted before? Yeah, right. And we're seeing that this year too, that there are primaries where somebody's voting in a Senate primary and the first time they ever voted was the presidential primary three months earlier. And so like the problem now is who are the chunk of people who haven't voted who are going to vote, which is a different problem. Right. And it's not easy to fix. And, um, you know, I've had to deal with it in real time when you start seeing the some places you can vote by mail and the secretary of state records it. So you can see in the weeks leading up to the primary who's voting right. and you can start seeing, wow, I'm comparing this to a like election and this is way higher than that like election. How do I adjust my sampling frame to find those people? And that's really hard. Um, and that's where pollsters get a bad rap because people somehow think pollsters can predict the future and predict who's going to vote. Yeah. And you can to some degree, but if people are going to vote for the first time ever, like I'm yeah. not sure how you're supposed to find them, you know? Yeah. So that'll yeah. be our problem this year in 2020 is, you know, not so much do we have the demographics of our symbol, right? But are we capturing people who didn't vote in 2016? Yeah. 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 I, 
look, a lot, lot I could say there, um, but, but let's keep moving. Um, um, let's get to our stated, let's talk down ballot <clears throat> before I open it up, um, start questions that have come in as we've been going. Um, um, look, Anna, um, quick readout from you. Um, look, given the national numbers, I think the smart money would have to say that the Dems are quite likely to retain the House. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and I think, actually, I think we might pick up seats because there were races that were really close, but we had a candidate, like it was a race that no one ever thought, you know, you had a weak candidate who didn't raise money. And so, you know, and so you sort of didn't invest in it. And so there's a bunch of seats, particularly in Texas. Um, Texas has got like three that potentially could flip. Um, there's a seat in Arizona. Um, so it's not, there's not a huge number of reach seats but they're there. There are places where Democrats who had no money lost by two or three points. And if they had the money to run a real campaign or if the party had realized it was competitive and come in and put money into it, they would have won. So I actually think Democrats will pick up some seats and I don't really see them losing any. Um, and let's real quickly then, um, what does it do to the composition of the caucus? Um, you know, in a world in which the Dems keep and if not grow, uh, their um, majority in the House of Reps does, you know, one of the big stories of 18, you've already alluded to women candidates doing well. I think perhaps, um, you know, the, the, that energy, the so-called squad uh, type um, members of the Democratic caucus, um, perhaps, you know, pulling uh, the caucus, uh, you know, towards the left and, and, you know, really deft political management by Pelosi and just any reflections on, sort of the internal dynamics mm. and the shape of the democratic caucus politically, ideologically um, after the election? I think that <clears throat> there's no question that there, are, that there are now more progressive members of Congress than there were before. But I think <clears throat> the media attention to the squad <clears throat> is a bit of a misread because if you look at the 40 pickups, in other words, the 40 seats that switched from Democrat to Republican, most of them are, are moderates oppose the Green New Deal, oppose Medicare for all. So the Progressive Caucus grows when progressive candidates win primaries. And you've already seen some of that this year, like Elliot Engel lost um, in New York, a Democrat who lost to a, a young progressive um, candidate, just like you know with AOC. So when you have those kinds of primaries, you then kind of, like I said, make the, the Progressive Caucus and the House gets bigger. But most of this, the flips almost by definition, you have to have a moderate candidate because you're flipping seats yeah. and you're getting some Republican votes and you're getting some independents who voted Republicans before. So there is more progressive energy, but the, you know, when I look at the seats that might flip, many of them are moderates. A few are, moderates, pro are yeah. very progressive, but most of them are moderates. Yeah. So, right. Okay. Um, and again, and in by the way, moderate is still pretty darn liberal. That's what's so annoying about the democratic party. It's like, who's the liberal and not the liberal or the progressive. I mean, everyone's really progressive. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's really, it's, it's at the margins. Like, do you think there should be a public option on Medicare that anyone can buy into at an right. affordable price? You, or do you want to have, I mean, obviously single payer is a huge thing, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, got it. there are really differences at the margin. Got it. Okay. Hey, uh, and before I open it up, uh, read out on the Senate. Um, for just to remind Australian listeners, um, the current Senate is 53-47 Republican Democrat. We've got 30 uh, Democratic. We've got, uh, we've got 35 senators up. 23 of the races um, are being defended by Republicans. Uh, 12 uh, are Dems. So Republicans, there are more Republicans up, right? Uh, for a start. Um, I'm, you know, in order for the Dems to get to uh, 50 uh, with the vice president, then presumably a Democratic vice president, uh, giving them the tie-breaking vote, um, um, most people say the Republicans take back Alabama. So that actually put, you know, the, the sort of the starting point for, for the Democrats, if you will, is actually a 54-46 Senate. And I'm just wondering, Anna, your sense of the likelihood that there are then four pickups? And if so, would you give us a, you know, Anna Greenberg's mm -hmm. tip as to which are the most likely four to, to go, perhaps, or, or, or not? Sure. Um, 
Well, full disclosure, I, my firm is working in four of those races. I, I work for uh, Mark Kelly in Arizona and John Hickenlooper in Colorado. And one of my partners works for Jean Jaheen in New Hampshire and Gary Peters in Michigan. Um, I think pre-COVID, I was very skeptical that we could win the Senate um, just because, you know, there are places like Maine, for example, where someone like a Susan Collins has a personal relationship with the people in that state. She, Democrats vote for her, right? So it's just hard to beat candidates that have a real connection to a state that mm -hmm. it's an authentic relation, you know, it's authentic. Mm -hmm. But I think COVID's really changed that. And I think that there's, you know, a very, I think, first of all, Trump, you know, because of very few people, Republicans, including even Collins and Murkowski, really challenged Trump, that they kind of own it, right? And so right. they own the success, like the economy booming, not that I think that Trump's responsible for it, but he claimed, you know, but they also own the failure. And he's really a, an anchor around people's neck. Um, and so I think that places like Georgia, North Carolina, Maine seem more possible. And then Tillis, in, in, you know, also in, um, in North Carolina, has a particular problem in that he was selling his stock after a private briefing that suggested that, like, you know, this, the, that the stock market was going to collapse, you know, just like Loeffler in, in Georgia. So I think, you know, I think we have a good chance of taking back the Senate. I don't want to put a number on it because sure. I don't know. Um, you know, I do think that Colorado and Arizona are the most likely to flip, and I'm not just saying that because I work there. Um, I think that's the conventional wisdom. <laughs> and from the public polling, yeah. both Gardner and McSally, yeah. Gardner has never gotten more than 42% in any public yeah, poll, and yeah, I don't think yeah. McSally's gotten more than, say, 45 So. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be our assessment too. The, just, you know, we only see the public polling. And if you look at that, Gardner, among Re Republican Senate incumbents in trouble, he's clearly, I think, the, the most in trouble. Um, it's a really interesting observation about that personal connection that is sort of being disintermediated by, by COVID for, you know, typically what makes Senate races a little more immune from national tides. Well, historically they have been, but as yeah, races right. become that's more right. nationalized, there are fewer and fewer. And what I'm saying is the few that still exist may go down. Yeah, yeah. You know, no, Collins no. in particular. I mean, she's yeah. the one who really has been there yeah. a long time and sort of embodied the notion of independence and yeah. in your mind and like yeah. main stuff. Yeah. Um, um, lot, lot we could, you know, we could get into race by race there, but, but in the interest of time, I'll, I'll, I'll keep moving. We've got about 17 minutes to go and it's time to turn to some questions that came in as people either registered or the, the many questions have shown up as, as uh, we've been, we've been chatting, Anna. And um, I'll answer them fast so you can get to a lot of them. That is, wow. I love this idea. <laughs> see, now it's up to me to ask them uh, fast. So let's yes. see. Let's see how we, um, look, we've already asked about the polls. Um, um, but I want to go back. Robert uh, Talbot Stern, um, who joins us from your neck, uh, he's in uh, the University of Pennsylvania. Anna, would you put a, what's the fudge factor to carry around on the polls, given sort of the likely error? If you see a lead, uh, you know, what's your working MOE as a margin of error? If a, if a candidate is up uh, in public polls, say an average of public polls says plus, plus three, um, is, is that enough or when do you start? Well, I rely on um, 538 yep. that shows for the most part, the bias is two or three points each cycle. Is that, is that right, Simon? That's about so, right. So like I would, that would be my margin of error. So right. like if Biden's up 15, do it. If he's up <laughs> That's, three, that, yeah. you know, um, because I think like, look, Clinton won by two and lost because of the electoral college. Right. So, you know, the conventional wisdom is you have to be up by like eight or nine presidentially to win the electoral college. But I think that 538's got a whole analysis. You can go look at it. That yeah. the average bias and, and usually swings, you know, one way or the other. It's not like there's that average error randomly. Yeah. This probably has a two or three point democratic bias, is my guess. Yeah. 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 And, and as because, we by the way, because Republicans are less likely to take service. If, if your guy's not doing well, you're less likely to want to take that survey. So there are probably fewer Republicans participating in surveys. So I would take whatever it is and say maybe it's two points lower. Okay. Um, and then relatedly, uh, shy tr Trump voters, do you think it's not just that they're hard to get to take the survey that people don't want to say to a pollster that they're actually thinking about voting for Trump? 
I personally have never looked at the issue, but I feel like every time the upshot or some other group looks at it, they say there's no evidence of shy Trump voters. Okay. Um, let's um, um, very, oh, there's a very specific question about, um, about from Jim Orchard, who looks like he's, as a former Colorado resident, from 2005 to 2016, I'm interested to know if Anna thinks the state is shifting from purple to blue. And then we've already spoke, talked about Corey. Um, but is, is that state locking in, Anna, I guess is the question. I think so. I mean, you, you can't look at the 2018 results where they basically swept the entire state, you know, I mean, and not, you know, by big margins. And, you know, a lot of this is the suburbs around Denver have completely shifted. Um, and not to mention the growing Hispanic population. So, I mean, I got in trouble when I said that I thought Colorado was blue by someone who lived in Colorado. And I was like, okay, sorry. Um, but I kind of think it's shifted blue. Yep. Yeah. Um, um, are there any sort of reach seats in the Senate, Anna, that, that, I mean, there are the easy things where we can look at the poll aggregators and we've talked about Colorado and, and, and Arizona. I know you've got, you know, you've, you're working for the Democratic candidates there. But are there any perhaps ones you're working for or not working for that you think, uh, boy, if, it, if it's really on um, and, you know, you go a little higher up the tree and th there might be a surprise, um, any, any, anything like that? And that comes I mean, from Michael Ramos asks that question. I mean, I think Georgia. Um, the, the challenge with Georgia is, as you know, from 2018, they practice a lot of voter suppression there. So in all likelihood, Stacey Abrams won that governor's race and you know, she was robbed. So that's an X factor, right? And even if you look at the presidential primary in Georgia this year, you still had lines, you know, yeah. people four hours in line. Yeah. And the other thing about Georgia is that it's a runoff state. So if you don't get 50%, you right. run off in December and um, runoffs tend to favor Republicans. So that's why I call Georgia reach because I think there's some structural challenges there. But if you have a true wave, you know, you could win one or both of those seats. And certainly the the person who the Republicans want, Kelly Loeffler, is now she may be beat by Doug Collins, but she's very damaged. Right. So, um, so and, and Kendall Warren, that answers your question too. Um, quite a few questions about really wanting to get in, into some of the nitty gritty and <laughs> we might have. Um, look, this is a good question from uh, Dana Longston, uh, Logston, I'm sorry. Uh, Above and beyond the question of how we, uh, <laughs> so I'm gathering. Uh, 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 there's a lot of Americans on this. <laughs> we, uh, uh, that's a Democrat, I, I'm presuming. We take the House and Senate. Is there a way for Biden to lose this? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. I mean, it, it's. It, I think it's possible for Biden to win and not win the Senate. I don't think it's possible for winning the Senate and Biden loses. Right. That means we're winning Senate seats in Republican states. But you're basically saying, you're, but the probability that Biden is the next president of the United States is, is approaching 1.0 in your view. It's higher than winning the Senate. I mean, you think about it, like you have to ask people running for Senate to outperform the top of the ticket. And really, it's really hard in sure. my anecdotal experience, about five points you know, it depends, but about five points is like the most you can do. So, yeah. you know, it's, it would be very unusual for a candidate to do five points higher than the president. Right. Uh, and, and Dana clarifies that he is a Californian living in Sydney. Um, okay. Oh, okay. Dana, great to have you with us. You're hey. definitely in a better place right now. <laughs> hey, um, one thing I, we've got a ton of questions on this. So apologies um, to no one that I'm singling out in particular, but Anna, um, is it something your clients are talking with you about or through the party networks that you're plugged into? But you mentioned voter suppression, but the prospects that we have a free, fair and peaceful election, the extent to which this is a, a genuine concern, and in particular, a genuine concern for people such as yourself and your clients who are, who are trying to win uh, right. this election. I mean, 
it's an unprecedented election, you know, to have the president of the United States cast aspersions on fairly conventional and well-regarded ways of voting, um, including in many states where Republicans have made ample use of the ability to vote early or vote by mail and not in person. So, you know, I'm not going to have any hubris to say that, like, it's no big, I don't know with what, but there's some interesting polling that suggests that now Republicans and, and some of my polling too are less likely to say they'll vote by mail. But of course, if COVID is raging in November, which there's no reason I think it won't be, given that we've done nothing, um, then, you know, does that hurt Republicans because they are gonna, you know, they're gonna vote in person. And then, you know, what if that's, they've reduced the number of polling places and you make that hard. So that's one, you know, possible aspect. Um, there definitely will be, you know, efforts at voter suppression. There always are, and I'm sure there'll be more of that. Um, but I guess the question is like, if people want to vote, for the most part, they'll be able to vote. And Democrats are highly motivated to vote. And they're being educated by the party and by outside groups to vote by mail. Because, you know, the rules are different in every state. And like, there's people in Texas who are like, I'm going to vote by mail. But you actually have to be 65 years old to vote by mail. <laughs> so they're not going to be able to vote by mail in Texas unless they're 65 and older. So a lot of education. So I, I can't answer your question. Um, okay, I think there's a lot me, of countervailing, there's countervailing pressures. There's countervailing, which is Republicans not availing themselves of it, which they have in the past. That hurts Republicans. And then the other is suppression of Democrats. And then a, an effort then to delegitimate the results. I would say I'm encouraged that when Trump a few days ago suggested that maybe we should postpone the election, that almost every Republican said that's not going to happen. Right. I'd like to think that there are enough Republicans, if Trump attempts to do that, who would um, say, you know, no, we're not. Well, it'd, we're it'd, not have to get through the, it'd have to get through a Democratic House too, right? It's federal statute that sets the date. Um, but yeah, so yeah, there's no way from delay it. I'm not, saying that yeah. he will still try to delegitimate it. And right. the question is like, I think we're going to need Republicans to like say, no, you have to leave office. Can, can you, <laughs> you lost. <laughs> can, can you maybe give us a little bit of insight into which these sorts of considerations about protecting people's access to the vote is an active part of something that candidates and perhaps the national party, it is, it is sort of part of the strategy and part of their operations between Have you got any insight on that? And that, absolutely that you is. Share with us? Yeah. Yeah. It absolutely is and it, at every level. It's the parties, it's the candidates. We have a lot of groups that do voter registration and getting out the vote who are, you know, working hard to educate people. So as an example, in, in Arizona, for example, you can sign up to be on the permanent absentee ballot list, meaning you just get an absentee ballot every election. You don't have, so there are huge numbers of people getting signed up by the coordinated campaign to go on the Pebble, it's called Pebble, to get on the Pebble list. Mm -hmm. So that's happening all over. And um, yes, there's, I'm not saying it's going to work, but I can tell you that there's great awareness and a lot of resources going into voter education. Because like I said, you know, if you're in Texas and you're not 65, you can't vote by mail. And so, you know, you got to make sure that if they want to vote, they know they can't do it (laughs) and they have to vote early or they have to go in person, you know? Um, A question from Suzanne uh, Ricard. Um, from here, meaning Australia, I presume, seeing the vigilante cohorts out in towns and cities armed to the teeth and very, very angry, what does the future hold for any kind of peace returning to American civil society following the election? And I'd say even during the election, actually, Anna. Um, you're, well, you're I can't believe you that. asked me that question six minutes before we end. Um, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> okay. okay. Hey, um, I have no idea. <laughs> um, um, one thing um, I, I do want to ask about um, from our perspective here as a U.S. study center, um, where the Australian-U.S. relationship and American foreign policy is, is such core business for us at the moment. Um, the extent to which foreign policy and perhaps China in particular is getting a run, so to speak, this election cycle, number one, politically. But perhaps I know away from the context of elections, Anna, 
your sense as a matter of policy um, where both sides of American politics might be tracking on this and indeed the million dollar question that Australian analysts are asking is if, as the poll suggests, Biden wins, um, what does a China policy and the, the appetite, the political appetite for, you know, prosecuting a, a you know, an ex, you know, an expensive military and all cyber and all those other things that, that, that countering China might entail. I did some, some takes from you on that. I know you're, foreign, you're not a foreign policy expert per se, but the way it intersects politics and, and, and domestic politics and, and domestic political support for those sorts of quite costly uh, policy initiatives. Your sense of that, Anna? Well, as you say, I'm not a policy expert. I think broadly speaking, I can assume that Biden will want to restore our role in the sense of being part of alliances, um, being part of a collective that tries to push back against things that Russia and China, you know, and other places do that hurt, you know, whether it's through hacking and, you know, cybersecurity and patents and trademarks to, you know, currency manipulation. I mean, on all of those issues or, or even just to sort of have a, a balance of military power. Like I, I believe that Biden will want to restore that with America working in alliance with other groups. Independently, I think the challenge will be, I think there's a lot of appetite among Americans to be hard on China, including uh, on, on things like, you know, it's really, people are less concerned about, they're more concerned about China as an economic power than anything else. Right. Um, and how do we compete and make sure that we're not overtaken by China? And so the, I think what'll be harder is that piece because even though, you know, Trump's tariffs didn't do anything helpful for us and certainly hurt a lot of people, there's a lot of appetite for those tariffs. Right. Um, right. And, you know, it's interesting that it's become a Republican thing and, and, and Obama was sort of, you know, the free trader. And so it kind of changed traditional partisan lines around it. Yep, yep. But there's a lot of appetite for, um, dealing with trade in China in a way that, and so that seems really hard to me. And I don't, it's not my area of expertise, but when, I think. When you say, sorry, Anna, when you say hard, what do, what do you mean by that exactly? Hard politically or? or it's or, not hard politically to be anti-China, right? but it's hard in policymaking terms because, okay. yeah. you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but like, as you know, the kinds of tariffs that, Trump imposed hurt the U.S. economy. Got it. So, but there's an appetite for tariffs and for economic punishment for China. So how do you do something that manages slash punishes China that doesn't hurt the U.S.? That's yeah. hard. Well, well, Australia would say it's not hard. Um, we've got these great multilateral fora waiting for the U.S. to rejoin and play a leadership sure. role. <laughs> okay. Um, and we talked about the TPP when you were out here, and we're almost out of time, so we won't go there. Last question, Anna. Um, uh, this is something that is a bit of a water cooler. We have water coolers in Australia still, kind of. <laughs> um, um, bit of a water cooler conversation at the moment, and that is, is there a scenario where Trump doesn't run? He, uh, the James some Carver. people's thinking. Yes. What do you think? No. Okay. Gosh. First of all, I, I don't know because it seems so inconceivable given his, given his narcissism that he would yeah. just sort of like take yeah. his ball and go home. Um, and I think right now his strategy is to try to delegitimate de the election yeah. so that even if he loses and actually leaves office, he will say that China rigged the election against him. Got it. And there'll be a large swath of voters who will believe the election was rigged against them. And so the question is, does that die out? Does it undermine democratic, further undermine democratic norms? But he will say China rigged this election against him. There's, there's no question in my mind. Right, and so, but right, got it, got it. Well, look, that's the top of the hour. Um, <laughs> that, that's 60 minutes and, and you get your yeah. evening back now. Um, um, <laughs> um, thank you so much, Anna. Uh, and thanks to everybody. Pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, um, I, this mode of interacting, it, it's a mixed blessing. Um, 
um, um, getting an hour of your time would ordinarily mean uh, flying you <laughs> across the world, <laughs> yes. a very costly undertaking for all of us. Um, um, but, but one thing we've been doing at the center is turning adversity into a bit of an opportunity. And Anna, thanks for another fantastic hour uh, for the United States Study Center. Um, again, it's my pleasure, and it's really nice to see your face. <laughs> oh, thank you. Likewise, Anna. I uh, hope to see you in D.C. again when yes. all this craziness settles down. Maybe in two years. <laughs> when Australians are able to travel. Uh, or right, when people will come back to our country again. <laughs> <laughs> right. or, we, or we would welcome you here. Exactly. Um, um, before I close out, uh, thanks to the team um, on the back end in Sydney, Janine and Mara, uh, another great job uh, by our events team, keeping me to time and the questions coming. And what I want to do is tease Friday. That's a, our monthly chat that I have with Gordon Flake um, on, again, another take on, on US politics as we head into less than 90 days towards this election coming up pretty soon, that 90-day benchmark coming up. Uh, and our special guest on Friday um, will be Dr. Evelyn Farkas, uh, an old colleague of, of Gordon's, um, a, a longtime friend of, and colleague of Gordon's, and will be joining us again from the United States. Um, but until Friday, uh, and note the time there, that's a one o'clock event, uh, Sydney time. Uh, we'll, see you, we'll see you then. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Anna. Bye, everybody.